You're listening to What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Check out all our shows at greenlitpodcast.com. Content warning. Miscarriages, older men sleeping with teenagers, the apocalypse, body snatching, and of course, creatures nature never intended. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. Seen in the soft green light of the window, speaking with her serious, calm air, Mary Shelley was beautiful to behold. There might be a melancholy here, but there was none of Shelley's madness, none of Byron's moodiness. She seemed like a being apart, a very sane but extraordinary young woman, and a slumbering thing in my breast woke and opened to her. She said, with a half-laugh, You must have documents to prove your claim to show at whatever unlikely temporal frontier post you came through on your way here. Of course I do, and better than documents. But the document that most interests me is your novel, Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus. About that, you'll have to give me more details, she said calmly, gazing at my face. How you have heard of my story, I do not know, for it lies unfinished upstairs, though I began it in May. Indeed, I may never complete it, now that we have to move back to England to sort out our difficulties there. You will finish it! You will! I know as much! For I come from a time when your novel is generally acknowledged as a masterpiece of literature and prophetic insight. A time when Frankenstein is familiar a name to the literate as Gulliver, or Robinson Crusoe is to you. But Victor was not real. Or rather, in the 21st century from which I came, there might be others from which I had not come, he existed only as a fictitious, or at best, legendary character whereas Mary Shelley was an historical figure whose remains and portraits could be dwelt on. In that world, Victor had not reached the point of emerging from possibility to probability, but I had not come to an 1816, and there might be countless other 1816s of which I knew nothing, in which he shared, and his monster shared, an equal reality with Mary and Byron and the rest. Before the lurid light went out, the monster at my feet said, This I will tell you, and through you, all men, if you are deemed fit to rejoin your kind that my death will weigh more heavily on you than my life. No fury I might possess could be a match for yours. Moreover, though you seek to bury me, yet you will continuously resurrect me. Once I am unbound, I am unbounded. Brian Aldiss, Frankenstein Unbound. In 1816, in a villa near Geneva, Switzerland, a famous meeting of the minds took place. The famous poet George Gordon, Lord Byron, and his friend Percy Bysshe Shelley, along with a doctor named John Polidori, all stayed there along with Shelley's mistress, the then Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin. The weather was bad, and they passed the time proposing to write horror stories. Shelley started a ghost story, which he never finished. Byron likewise gave up after writing a fragment about vampires, which inspired Polidori to write The Vampire, a seminal work of vampire fiction. 
but it was Mary who produced the greatest work out of the Conclave. Possibly inspired by the nearby Castle Frankenstein, where, in 1673, an alchemist named Johann Conrad Dippel was rumored to have performed experiments on human bodies, Mary, still a teenager at the time, produced a novel that needs no introduction. Over a hundred years later, many SF writers, among them Brian Aldiss, would declare Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, to be the official first-ever science fiction novel. Aldiss, apparently enraptured with Shelley, wrote Frankenstein Unbound as a tribute to her. This is the novel we'll be looking at today. Hello, welcome to What Mad Universe, the show about pulp and genre fiction, where two uh, knowledgeable yet inexperienced people. We look at different genre stories and we try to uh, tie them into the broader history and the patterns and streams that have traversed literature and culture over the years. I'm uh, Adam Prosser. With me, as always, is Philip Rice. Hello. And uh, so today, we're uh, as ever, we don't really want to look at the really famous ones that we don't really have much to say about because everyone's already said everything about them. So we like to take kind of a sideways look at them. And uh, so instead of looking at Frankenstein itself, uh, we're looking at a novel called Frankenstein Unbound, a 1973 novel by uh, Brian Aldiss. Um, and uh, Phil, had you heard of this before I suggested it? Or? Uh, I I think I'd heard the name. I don't think I didn't know anything about it or any any of the weird stuff that happens in it. So not really. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's very much a uh, we uh, we've discussed the new wave of sci-fi before, and it's very much a uh, post new wave sci-fi novel. 1973. That's kind of when when that was all the rage in uh, in sci-fi, and uh, it did seems to have come out of. Um, I, I don't know that much about Brian Aldiss actually, but it does seem to have come out of. Uh, the science fiction arguments that were happening at the time, and you know, he was he was very insistent that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein should be considered the first science fiction novel, and uh, he uh, which wrote it. We've gone over many times. I disagree with, but right, yes. Well, this is where I mean, I, again, I think that was a valid discussion to have in 1973. I think that you know, with 50 years of hindsight, we can now go, well, wait a minute, is that the right? Blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, you can have that ongoing conversation. But I think it was good, and I think it was it was also good of him to acknowledge because I think. I think there were always there was a, probably a period where people would be like, it was written by a girl, ew, you know. There's also, um, I believe there were claims at the time that uh, Percy Shelley actually wrote it under his oh, wife's yeah? name or something like that, something stupid like that. I almost can't blame them because the the like Mary Shelley in general seems like this over the top fictional character <laughs> as a person even yeah, and uh, um, the fact that it was written by know, a... she lost her virginity um, having on her mother's grave <laughs> that literally yes. happened yeah and she used to keep her mother's heart fossilized in her desk no i think that was uh, percy after er, uh, percy shelley after he died oh okay she kept percy shelley's heart on her desk after i think so okay and w by the way, did she lose her virginity to Percy Shelley, or was yeah, it someone that was, else? Yeah, that was Shelley. Uh, and okay. he was much older than she was. She was a teenager, so. Actually, uh, I don't believe he was. Uh, well, I believe uh, he was only a no. couple years older. I, I was, I was, I was curious about that too. So I did actually look it up. And she was born in 1797. He was born in 1792. So he was five years older than her. So okay. it wasn't insane, uh, you know. But yeah, I mean, and yeah. It's still a little gross, but for the time, uh, <laughs> you know, that considering that you had like 40 year olds marrying, you know, 16 year olds. Yeah. It was and, maybe not and quite as. That's reflected in some things that happen in the book. 
Right. Yes, it is. With uh, and Frankenstein's I mean, it, it, own uh, parents, are, there's a considerable age difference there. And uh, he, of course, mm-hmm. his love interest is his cousin slash adopted sister. So Right. Was, Another thing that was quite common yeah. in the... In the in the Regency area era and, and that time time of although year. but you know with with although the the uh, people uh, I've seen people refer to the book as Victorian but it was written during the Regency and it's set <laughs> during the Georgian period so late uh, 1700s or mid 1700s right. it's a little ambiguous but it's definitely 1700s yeah Mary actually says in Frankenstein Bound because Mary Shelley is a character in Frankenstein Unbound and she says you know oh yeah I said it in the previous uh, century because that's the fashion of the time basically yeah um and it's it, it is it would have been you know a gothic it would have been considered a gothic which and gothics were at the time you almost always had to set them in the past yeah uh, that was almost the default I was uh, I was a little setting. confused at for or a little um not confused annoyed at first reading Frankenstein Unbound when it said it in the 18 18- uh, 19, but I see that they, <laughs> they acknowledged it, so at least he right. pointed out yeah. that, you know, that's not the way it was in the book, but I guess it had to be to make things line up and whatnot right. in this case. But at least yeah. he knew he, yeah. made, and he, at least he, knew yeah, he exactly. was making he, a change. I think that's better than yeah. just not doing the research. Right. Well, I mean, you're literally saying, oh, by the way, Frankenstein's monster is real, uh, or was real. I mean, already you're <laughs> you're playing around with history. You may as well just say, oh, it happened, and she just changed the setting time period. Because as I said, so it does sound like, um, she, the, it, apparently it's slightly controversial, but it's very hard for me to believe that Castle Frankenstein, which is near Geneva, which is where they were staying when, they, when this, uh, this party, uh, when she started writing the book, um, it's very hard for me to believe that Frank Castle Frankenstein, the real Castle Frankenstein, where apparently there were alchemical experiments, although not done by the actual Baron Frankenstein, but by um, by someone who was in the castle. Um, it's very difficult to believe that wasn't an, uh, didn't have an impact on the story, but hey, <laughs> apparently that's contested by some points. The argument being that she didn't ever mention it in any of her notes or diaries, Um but I don't know. I mean, that seems what are the, like a what thing the, that, yeah. Yeah. What are the odds that a literal Castle Frankenstein was right near the place where she decided to write the novel Frankenstein and it didn't have an impact on her? Mm-hmm. So, um, And as you were saying about the whole conspiracy theory that Percy Shelley wrote it, I mean, uh, like, I can almost see that that theory because, I mean, A, it's Percy Shelley. He was a writer. Uh, and the fact that she was literally about, 18 years old when she started writing it it does make it a little hard to believe like it's like because she was pretty uh, I guess the words precocious like like she's way you know she's obviously very gifted advanced uh, you know to be writing <laughs> arguably the you know and, and arguably we remember her a little better than we do Byron or Shelley although they're still fairly well known as well um, you know the fact that that she was able to write this novel when she wasn't even out of her teens yet is pretty in- pretty incredible yep um i mean it would be incredible for anybody i mean it's a it's an amazing piece of work but uh right the fact that she yeah. was so young is um, in between and she had a baby and she was raising a child at the time and all the kinds of stuff yeah. was happening so it's pretty and i believe she had some miscarriages before then too yeah yeah well there was it was actually they were discussing and as it as aldous puts in the novel uh the idea that uh she probably they <laughs> what we would nowadays call a polycule it was probably uh a bit of a, you know, it, there was a bit of a, everyone Free sleeping love with situation. each other. Yeah, exactly. Because they were very much um, ahead of their time. Libertines. Were, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But but in a in a in a way that 
you know, we would see as like, yeah, they were, you know, they were setting the stage for the 20th century, a hundred years before the 20th century. Yeah. And, uh, as, as the book presents, Shelley is, uh, pretty accurate to how I understand his actual political right. point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was an anarchist. Um, he wrote a, a poem called the mask of anarchy. That's just a peon to right. anarchism. So, I mean, this is way before Marx and it's, it's interesting right. that these uh, ideas were sort of right. Yeah, that, yeah. Well, that's the thing people forget. Like Marx didn't create, so he created communism, but he can, didn't create socialism, which existed, uh, like, I at, uh, quite a while before that. I mean, uh, the mm-hmm. famous Luddites uh, revolt, which happened in England, was uh, I believe in the name of socialist uh, uh, revolt. Uh, so that was kind of interesting, and um, you know, like that was you know that. And I mean, even Amer- the American and French revolutions themselves were probably somewhat inspired by socialist ideas. Um, but there's a uh, but yeah, it wasn't sort of codified into what we think of as socialism until. Marx came along, but yeah, it, the mm. fact that that was. But uh, yeah, there's uh, uh, one second. I'm just opening it up. One of the last lines of uh, the Mask of Anarchy is, um, um, "Ye are many, and they are few." Right. Yeah, it Which was is sort of yeah. It, it kind of ties into the Enlightenment had happened, and people started to go, "Hey, why do we have these king people again? Why yeah. do we need these people? Yeah. You know, well, people uh, I mean, themselves. capitalism itself was a was a rejection of." previous like an improvement on previous um uh modes of uh governance and right the economy and all that so it's i mean yeah well then the irony is that this book then paints i mean it's not as simple as this but it paints shelley as somewhat of a uh like a you know a foolish optimist because the the big theme of the novel Frankenstein Unbound, and also Frankenstein itself, is that you know man shouldn't usurp God and shouldn't you know technological progress can have a dark side. What a shock, you know. Uh, but and it and it leans it, it it very clearly contrasts Byron and Shelley. They have a long conversation where Byron's the pessimist about human nature being able to you know to create a new world, whereas Shelley's like, no, we're going to create a new world. It's going to be great. Everything's going to be wonderful. And he ties it as we've said before. You have to remember that you know socialism for the 19th and early 20th centuries, it was always tied up with technological progress. And that's where Shelley's coming from. He's saying, oh yeah, we'll invent this cool new technology, which under the guidance of socialism and free men and, you know, without getting rid of capitalism, we'll be able to uh, to do all kinds of wonderful things. And Byron's like, no, I don't think we'll ever escape our human nature. And, you know, I'm, you know, he was the pessimist as it were. And, uh, you know, in the context of the novel, and it is interesting that, you know, her, his wife then wrote a novel that was explicitly <laughs> about, you know, the, the downside of technology, as it were, and the downside of... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, though, I mean, that that's definitely, you know, a big thing of what Frankenstein's about, but it's, I think it's a, I think the, um, the idea of, uh, you know, meddling in God's domain and that stuff, it's um, more of a thing in the movies than it is in the book, though it's in the book, but it's... I feel like um, there's more of a case to be made of like uh, uh, a uh, nurture versus nature argument with raising somebody, like um, uh, the idea that the the creature is um, not born evil but becomes evil because he's miserable, uh, because right. he's treated badly throughout his life. Well, the, yeah, that's um, true. Yeah, Shelley makes a big point, and I mean the movie does as well, to make it that uh, Frankenstein's monster, he didn't have to turn out that way. It was partly because his... His father, you know, I think mostly him. because his father right. rejected him instantly and yeah. treated him like crap and abandoned him. 
Right. Um, I mean, what did he think was going to happen? <laughs> it is kind of funny. I mean, Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein is, or Victor Frankenstein is a, yeah, a he's not a doctor in the book. He never he never gets through medical school. Right. Yeah. I mean, yes, exactly. He's a he's a he's he's a baron, I guess, in the book. Um, yeah. But um, uh, but or, yeah, Victor Victor's a guy who sucks. Plus, he has depression, as the line <laughs> says. Um, um, but yes. you know what doesn't suck is uh, podcasts. So uh, here are some other podcasts you might like to listen to. So we'll take a break and be right back with what Mad Universe. Hello, my name is Jonathan Dunn, and I'm inviting you to listen to Our Three Cents, a weekly podcast where myself and two of my very best gaming chums are counting down our top 100 favourite video games of all time. For all the episodes and information, check out our website, www.our3cents.co.uk. Hey folks, it's Asif Khan, CEO and Editor-in-Chief over at ShackNews.com. Give a listen to our 9 to 5 Elon podcast about Tesla and electric vehicles and all sorts of cool stuff over there on the Greenlit Podcast Network. That's very accurate, My my understanding of the book, uh, something that was actually uh, a significant part of what uh, Shelley, Mary Shelley, was, uh, was saying with it, um, and it, interestingly enough, the Hammer movie version of Frankenstein captures a bit of this, uh, which is that it was explicitly the, the part she was specifically focused on was the idea that um, it's about you know man does not have a right to usurp woman's place as yeah. the bearer of life. Uh, you yeah, know, she of course um, was an early version of sort of a feminist, and and that was actually uh, her mother. Yeah, definitely was like the most prominent feminist of the time. Uh, mm-hmm. Mary Wollstonecraft, uh, who was she, she was named after, um, and um, yeah, a, a big part of it is is the idea that um, um, men thinking that they can create life without you know the so called taint of womanhood or sex or you know right the act of sex. Yeah, it is significant actually that Frankenstein. Uh, when it's time to build a mate, that's when he breaks down, and you know, like he you yeah. know, had full steam ahead on a male creature, but not a female creature. Um, in the original, in this one, he Victor's a little more into it. Yeah, that's right. That's true. Yeah, this part sort of downplays that uh, feminist aspect, um, though it does mention bit. it. it. Yeah, it does bring it up. Right. Well, let's talk about the uh, Frankenstein Unbound then by Brian Aldiss. Um, just quickly, yeah. um, Brian Aldiss, he's not. Uh, you know, he's a, I, I don't have any interesting stories or anything about him. He was, uh, you know, he was associated more with the new wave of science fiction uh, because he, uh, as I said, that was the, that was the big thing in the late sixties. Uh, he's British. Um, he's best known for writing uh, super toys last all summer long, which was the basis for the movie AI by Steven Spielberg. Um, the, the, the short story is basically the opening act of the movie. And then Kubrick and Spielberg kind of take it in this whole other direction. Um, but um, yeah, and he wrote uh, something called the Heliconia, uh, Heliconia Trilogy, uh, which might have inspired Game of Thrones, actually, if I'm not mistaken. That was based on uh, a planet where winter lasts for a very, very long time. Um, but uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's a very talented writer. And as I say, this was essentially him, uh, this, this story was essentially him planting his flag and saying, 
you know, here's my manifesto about why Mary Shelley is great and Frankenstein is the first science fiction novel. Uh, and it becomes and also a self-insert where he has I, sex with her. I was going to say that. <laughs> it becomes a self-insert insert fanfic as well, where, like, the main character is very much just Brian Aldous, essentially. Although he's American, oddly enough, um, which is actually weird, given that they're in Europe and it would have made more sense for him to be British. But... Um, <clears throat> Also in the uh, in the movie adaptation, which we'll talk more about later, but uh, he's played by William Hurt, not even trying an American accent, but he keeps <laughs> yeah. calling himself American. Yeah, it's really weird. That's very strange. And then they cast the American Raul Julia as Frankenstein, which was very weird. <laughs> Who but, wasn't even trying an accent, really? <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, it was uh, anyway. Yeah. yeah, accents cost money. It's Roger movie. Corman production. Well, yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, it is pretty blatant. Like you get to that point, you're like, okay. And I mean, it's well written. You can see he's genuinely, you know, he genuinely is admires Mary Shelley and everything. Uh, but it is literally just, what if I could time travel and have sex with this historical character? Like <laughs> that is what it becomes for. You know, it's, there's more to the novel than that, obviously. But uh, but who amongst us? Yeah, you know? <laughs> it's true. It's true. Uh, but again, even the main character, this character that we're talking about, it, like Aldous would have been in almost 50 when he wrote the novel and this so is the the self-insert character is actually yeah, he's a grandfather he's a grandfather he's older, i think yeah. and he's married and doesn't i mean he very briefly later goes oh i've got a wife <laughs> but <laughs> i guess that's your uh, get out of jail free card if you get thrown back in time to meet a historical icon well you weren't married yet back in the yeah right <laughs> technically back i'm not the, married for another 100 and 200 years so yeah exactly um by the way, the novel is set in 2020, interestingly enough, right about late summer 2020, which is... Uh, yeah, kind of and uh, re yeah, the there, reality is literally breaking apart because of uh, war and, stri you know, strife. Yeah, um, well, not even, and, like, uh, yeah, did, did, I, I saw a synopsis saying it was linked to a nuclear war in space, but I don't remember that specific line Yeah, that's, that's right at the beginning. Um, right. It says that uh, it turns out that nukes uh, in space tear up the fabric of the universe, and that's why the time slips are happening. Ah, okay, gotcha. All right. Um, yeah, I, I, sorry, I missed that. It must have been very early on before I knew what the heck was going yeah, on. Yeah, it's about the first page or something. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, time and space are being exploded and implicitly... Well, I, I mean, you want to say, oh, reality is being destroyed, but at the same time, there's stuff later on that implies that humanity does survive that. So... Um, it's hard to say. Or does it? Because it, there's alternate versions of both the past and present True. and future in the in the books. So that's right. Yeah, it, it goes with the the many worlds theory, which it kind of has to, as we say, to to make this this uh, this narrative make sense. Um, but he's uh, so the main character uh, Joseph, as much as it does. <laughs> as much. Well, it's it's not. Yeah, it's not concerned with conventional narrative uh, rationality, yeah. and that's a, that's a big hallmark of the new wave uh, sci-fi. Is that they, you know, it's just this just happens. Get over it. It happens, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's so the, in this book, uh, Frankenstein's and the monster and all that happens more or less what in the book, except in a different century. And uh, but Mary Shelley also exists, and she views Frankenstein as a fictional character she created just a few months before. Right. Um, but he lives. He actually does live in the next town over. Right. It's it's very weird, and they discuss, and the the narration sort of discusses how weird this is, but mm -hmm. at the well, same time, it never, yeah, it, it just go go with it. Well, let's, let's so let's yeah. just let's just set the stage for the story here. Um, so yeah, reality is breaking down in 2020. Time and space, people are sort of walking outside, and suddenly a chunk of land will be like in you know 
1776 or whatever. It'll be a completely different uh, time and place. You can literally walk down the road and suddenly, and then, you know, after a few hours, it'll revert back to the way it was. So the main character, uh, Joseph Odenland, he, um, he ends up... Uh, he's a um, uh, former um, uh, advisor to the president. Yeah, which is uh, not something that comes up that much, oddly. Except no, though he, he was... Um, it does establish that he was an ambassador to uh, Switzerland, and that's why he can speak the languages. So. Right, right. Yeah, that's the only reason that that part of his backstory seems to be there, from what I can tell. Is cause, so he can just start speaking German and French without making it a big deal. Uh, but he, yeah, so he wanders down the path at one point and finds himself in 1818, and, or 1816, I guess. And um, <clears throat> he's in Geneva, Switzerland, and he meets both uh, Frankenstein and his monster and Shelley, Byron, and Mary Shelley. And... Um, uh, so that's that. That's the that's the very strange, massive. Setup. Yeah, he very he very quickly decides that he needs to destroy this monster, right. which is a little bit weird because I mean, the creature is sympathetic in almost every version of it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of weird that he just views it as a monster that needs to be abolished from the earth. Though I'd argue that you you mentioned earlier that in the in the original novel that. You know the Frankenstein. Of course, he kind of he got abandoned by his creator and then turned evil. Um, but after you get past that, and as you say, it's it's a nature versus nurture thing. But in the novel, it it did come off as once he'd gone evil, he was irreparably evil, right? Like the the, the monster. I don't think he was irredeemable. I think um, I I think there there are um, not necessarily justifying circumstances, but sort of. Um, yeah, I don't see him as a complete monster, so to speak. Sure, I mean but it, that, that's my reading. But and I mean, yeah. well, yeah, you get. Of course, it's all narrated by Frankenstein himself, so you kind of get the idea of like, um, like Frankenstein calls him evil repeatedly. Um, but and, he he calls him that the second he sees his freaky right, eyes. So, right. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's this is Frankenstein's take. We get Frankenstein's take on the monster, which is he's evil, and I think it's telling that, as you say, all the later versions tend to play up the sympathetic side of the monster because he was yeah abandoned. really i mean it happens really quickly like james whale um in uh bride of frankenstein has has uh, the frankenstein's monster crucified i mean it's like it's, <laughs> yeah, it's right. not subtle about it yeah and again we were talking about this um we did a prologue episode which has kind of been swapped out we just recorded it fairly recently but it's 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 the it's our quote first episode which we did as kind of an intro to the entire series uh, and we did talk about frankenstein a bit there as well um the fact that they put in the you know the the murderer's brain in the movie um it's it's kind of interesting that they do that because it doesn't play into the story at all the frankenstein's monster is still mostly a yeah. good guy even though he supposedly got a murderer's brain um and uh yeah. it doesn't it's it's i mean you could argue that as also kind of a blank slate uh, hypothesis like the idea that well it you know it remakes you into a new person and you you can start again from scratch so it doesn't matter that he was a murderer because he you know he's a new person yeah uh, he does kill a kid in the movie but it's purely accidental he doesn't know what he's doing exactly um, yeah it's 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 innocent uh, you know, he, he if, if so, I'm not mistaken, uh, this is an aside. Apparently, a lot of uh, TV edits early on, or um, maybe not even like early film edits, uh, the scene where he throws the kid into the water because she's throwing flowers into the water. Yeah. Um, and he just thinks he's copying her and throws her into the water and it ends right. up killing her. Yeah. Um, in a lot of versions, they cut that out saying it was too scary for people. 
So it has mm. Franken it has the monster sort of lunging at the you know about to pick up the girl, cutting to uh, somebody holding her dead body, and that just right. fills in a lot of blanks in your minds and makes it seem worse than what actually happened. Right, right. I feel like when I first saw it on TV, it had that as well. Uh, that's that's interesting. Um, but yeah, it's it's it, 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 the nature versus nurture is a big part of both the novel and subsequent movies. And again, I'd I'd actually say that's a major theme of the movie. That's a theme they pulled out uh, to a large degree and and amplified in the movie. That and again, it's it's in the novel. But I mean, you could argue the scientific ideas weren't as developed in 1816, and that's why they maybe didn't uh, hammer it on. But but it is true that you know you've got to. It, you know, question mark, unreliable narrator, which is not a common well, thing. Well, yeah, in it has, it has the, mo it has the creature say, I mean, directly, you know, I'm, uh, well, I can't remember the exact line, but, um, um, I am as you made me basically. Is what yeah. I well, I, I'm, uh, I became evil because of my misery sort of thing. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, like circumstances did shape them. That that's quite clear from the book. That's not even subtext. It's yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, because he's and there's sort of an early part where it seems like he might be happy in the in the villagers' cottage as well, or hanging around. Yeah, outside the until cottage. until they see him, and yeah, right, right. So it's and even that is like that's Frankenstein's fault that he's ugly and that everyone hates him, and you know. So yeah. so yeah, no, the every version, as you say, is reg, vaguely sympathetic to the monster, although, but he does start, you know, actively murdering people at one point, at some point, and in, in know, the book, hard, yes, yeah. um, he kills. He kills the child, blames it on like he's. I'm not saying he's a he's a good guy at a certain point, but um, I think um, uh, it's sort of like uh, he sees them as a different species at that point because they see him as a different. And it's sort of like morality. Does that really, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I yeah, th that's... like they see him as an enemy, so why shouldn't he see them as an enemy? Sort right. of thing. Yeah. Oh, I'm. Yeah, I'm saying at that point he's like firmly. Locked in as yeah, he's a bad guy. So to get back to Frankenstein Unbound, it is uh, not unreasonable, I think, that Bodenland would then or. Uh, but at the same at the same time, um, uh, he says he's not that familiar with the novel. He read it when he was a boy, but he's mostly seen the movie versions. So again, I just find it a little odd. Well, I he, think he's so uh, insistent on killing this thing. Well, I think there is a reason for that. And again, the the book has that dreamlike thing to it, where it's not explicitly spelled out point by point uh but i think that's an emphasis of the theme and oddly enough so we watched let i want to talk briefly about the movie which we did watch believe it or not there's a movie it was made in 1990 by roger corman of all people his last movie that he directed oh yeah. was it his last one? Oh, okay yeah uh, i thought he still kept going a bit into the 90s but yeah he, he, i i think it, just as producer i'm pretty yeah, sure this is producer. his last directorial uh effort oh okay interesting yeah no he definitely produced some later movies anyway he he um but oddly enough there are some good choices made in the screenplay uh to the movie um i kind of liked the fact that buchan his name is buchanan instead of bodenland in the in the in the movie um little easier to say yeah. <laughs> he's um he's actually he's a scientist doing the experiment that messes up space and time um so he's explicitly responsible for it and that is actually yeah that that does tie into the themes a bit where he's re a reflection of uh frank victor frankenstein and the right. science gone wrong sort of thing yeah exactly he's 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 responsible for potentially the apocalypse caused by science which of course we're all used to as a theme 
by the 20th century. And uh, so he's literally going back to the origin of that idea. Uh, and if you tied it and into... And there's a line where he, he actually says, I am Frankenstein. It's a little on the nose, but I don't <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is, so this is almost in a, a, a In chance. an otherwise better movie, it would have worked, I yeah. think. Well, it's yeah. Unfortunately, the Frankenstein makeup in the movie is really bad. That's that's one of the things that uh, hobbles it. Unfortunately, it, it's very cheap. It's it's very Corman, uh, and yeah. I like a lot of Corman stuff. But I yeah. I, I think this was a little right a no, weird choice to adapt. Maybe it's not great, but you can see the the, the seeds of a really good adaptation in it. Actually, yeah. I also uh, like that they sort of they sort of um, justify Mary Shelley and Victor Frankenstein existing by her actually attending the trial and knowing right. he exists. And yeah. basing the later basing the novel on him. So, although in the novel, the the idea is more that um, the mere fact that uh, you know it's it, it's almost implied to be kind of first of all, it's implied that it might be a fallout from the space time ruptures that the monster yeah, yeah. does exist. No, I'm just saying in a movie that would be hard to explain, and I like that they. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I feel like just saying space and time is messed bit. up. Yeah, f fair enough. But but anyway, the, that does kind of tie into the idea of thematically the fact that he's gone back in time to you know prevent the original you know abomination of science that is causing uh you know that is destroying uh that like the, this is beginning humankind on the path that will lead to in his time destroying the world possibly or at least very badly messing up the world um and that's a theme in the book although it's much subtler in the book uh i mean it's you, you can't get away from it when you're doing frankenstein right it's it's inevitable yeah um and and but he just he's he's a bit more of a you know a, a passenger he's along for the ride um so he's not ex explicitly responsible for it but you can i think that's the motivation it's kind of like well maybe if i kill the monster we'll be doing the equivalent of you know fixing our mistakes and things will okay, be better in yeah. the future and, and i definitely got that from the movie but uh yeah that makes sense in the book too yes yeah. and because in it, a less direct way in the last few pages of the the book so the in the book it ends with them, you know, just as in the, the original novel, they're thrown into, you know, the, the frozen lands and there's a, you know, the battle on the ice with the monster. Uh, in this version, he's actually chasing the monster and the bride. They're both, they're both, uh, they're both, he did make the bride in this version and then kill Frankenstein. Yeah, and the bride's head was taken from Justine, which is right. a dark thing, I felt. The movie yeah. had it uh, be Elizabeth, Frankenstein's um, bride-to-be, right. uh, yeah. which... A lot of movies do, but I, I hadn't thought of Justine as the that's well, sort of like a weird, creepy twist I, I liked. But, well, that was uh, see, that's that's a really effective moment in the book because you realize like Frankenstein has no morality. He's just oh here's yeah, a, here's a woman's head. Like he doesn't have any attachment to Justine. Yeah, it's just He's, a case um, of just uh, for those who haven't read Frankenstein, Justine is the maid who um, uh, the monster uh, frames for the murder of uh, Henry, right? Uh, the young boy. So the maid is hanged. And uh, Frankenstein feels, in the book, uh, Victor feels he's responsible, and that sends him into another one of his depression spirals. Right. Um, and here and, it's like, um, it's a case of, but what's so effective here is that, you know, he's he's essentially responsible for her death, uh, but he's willing to still just take her body and defile it and use it, because all he cares about is the science, right, and, all, and the technology. Yeah. So it's a really great signifier of that uh other versions that make the bride as you say into elizabeth or whatever uh because i think the kenneth branagh version of the movie did that as well um and it's it's i don't like that as much because he's not bringing back someone to life 
somewhat like he's it's supposed to be a new creature right like a new being um it's not supposed to necessarily be resurrecting the dead per se it's just that he uses corpses to resurrect them um and i i get why people want to include that beat but i think it misses the theme that they're going for which is well we're creating a new adam and eve here it's a new yeah the, the the slate is supposedly being wiped clean except it's not or at least it's being even actually i'd argue the the slate is being wiped clean but because frankenstein is so flawed and bad he's you know setting out a new a bad new precedent for these these characters and yeah. um, and they end up yeah so they end up in the in the frozen lands but it's also the far future at that point uh, implied to be like the universe is you know on its last legs that's how far in the future yeah. they are the, and this is just like a, a few miles from geneva cuz it another time slip happens and yeah floods the area and um like uh geneva is basically the only part left and everything else is just frozen around it right and uh and when they they go there it's uh so they find this eight there's this this uh gigantic city which uh joe hypothesizes is sort of the last human city and it's you know, at the far end of the gal- of the universe. Again, in the movie, it is a lot more explicit. It's like, yeah, it's a far future, you know, abandoned, ruined city. Possibly mankind had wiped itself out entirely. Again, like, the movie actually does make these smart choices that really play up that whole theme of mankind destroyed itself with technology. In the book, when he's approaching it, uh, Joe is, like, saying, well, you know, I'm sure back in my time they fixed the time slips by now. The scientists have worked on it and fixed it. Um, and there's no indication. I I don't know if that's supposed to be him being incredibly naive and foolish, or if it's legitimately meant by Aldous. Like it's not totally clear. But that just emphasizes the fact that um, Joe is just kind of he's okay with science and technology to that degree. But he you know he thinks he thinks we can fix things again by killing the monster. Basically, if we kill the monster, yeah. At that will be point, good. at that point in the book, he's um. He's become very single-minded, um, as single-minded as Victor is, you know, mm-hmm. in, in some ways. Like, that's part of the theme of the, the original novel with uh, Victor talking to the, um, um, what's his name, Robert something, who's trying to go to the North Pole. Right, and the, Victor the convincing him that you can't just follow your your dreams to that, to, to the exclusion of, of humanity and, you know. Right. Um which is to the exclusion of, of all your family and you know everything around you. Um, that right. There's a limit to how much you can do that, and uh, that's sort of what uh, Joe's doing at the end. He's just he's decided this is this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it no matter it what is, the cost. Yeah, and it, and it is, but it is is interesting. Like I say, that he's arguably coming from a better place than Victor because he's like, well, we have to fix my mistake, uh, but. Of but course. at the same time, Victor is trying. I mean, he's very arrogant, even in the, even in uh, the original book. But he is. I mean, you could see arguments for like he wants to um, conquer death and all that. Like you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He he ultimately wants to do the right thing. But the point is that he's obsessed and and you know he doesn't think about the human the human side of things. Uh, Joe yeah. Bodenland he does think about the human side of things. Like he cares about people. Yeah. Uh, but it's yeah. He's but still... I think by the end he's a little single minded. Oh, uh, he he absolutely yeah. is. But it's just whereas Victor was like, I will create this monster as a pinnacle, you know, as the embodiment of my genius. Bodenland is like, well, this is kind of where the mistake was made what if we fix that mistake maybe it'll be okay and he's as you say he's not very rational by the end 
Um, but, yeah, but I don't know. I think you're coming at it with more less sympathy for the monster and more for the humans, and I'm coming at it from the other angle. Oh well, to be, to be clear, I'm not saying that killing the monster is going to do anything. Like I think he's that's just what he's gotten hung up. No, on. I'm just saying that that's like a, a I think a reasonable interpretation you're making. I just think we're coming at it from different angles. Yeah. But it is uh, mentally. I, I think it's it, it is cool though that like in a sense his well we can fix things is the same basic mindset that drove victor to build the monster in the first place right like yeah. oh, we can make things better if we do this and in his case he's going back in time and messing around with history <laughs> i mean not intentionally originally but he's decided to mess around with history and it's it, it's the same impulse regardless of the the personalities at play it's yeah you know you can though at that. that point in um if you're going with the uh Going back in time will change the future. At that point in the book, Percy Shelley had drowned to death early. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, so history would have already been changed, and most of the world's been replaced by a giant ice sheet. So, right. Um, yeah, I think I think um, the um, all the time travel paradoxes are kind of out the window at that point. You can just right. do whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, as we say, as we, so as we say, every... Joe and really everyone in this novel is very good at just kind of going with the flow. Uh, crazy yep. sh stuff is happening uh, all throughout this novel, and Joe Bodenland barely lets it bother him. <laughs> I mean, you can argue yeah. that they kind of got over the time slippage, uh, like they'd been dealing with that for a while, and it it messed them up, and they were all traumatized. Mary Shelley seems really quick to, or Mary Godwin at, the, at this point, because she's not married yet, but uh, she seemed pretty quick to to sort of jump on this whole you're a time traveler thing. I mean, he has the yeah. proof of the car, of his car and all that that came with him, but still, I don't know. Yeah, it's, people are, people, well, I mean, they've, like, there's literally a, a significant exchange. The, the main reason, uh, other than, you know, wanting to, you know, be enraptured with Mary Shelley, uh, there is a, um, uh, the main reason for that whole sequence is that, you know, Shelley and Byron have an exchange about their different, ideas and you know the nature of uh humanity and science and technology and all that sort of stuff and so you can see them but you can see them both in that case as being very forward-thinking people who wanted you know they, they they were looking at like oh yeah in the future this is going to happen in the future this is going to happen so that does kind of open the door for him to be able to say yeah i'm from the future and i've gone back blah 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 at the but, same yeah. time i mean i i need <laughs> yeah. more adjustment to go from future to i'm gonna have sex with you i don't know <laughs> Um, yes. Well, to be fair, he get, he does it by saying, "By the way, you're one of the greatest writers in the English language, and you've accomplished all this uh, wonderful stuff." I mean, that would that would win <laughs> over a lot of people, I have to admit. Um, but yeah, it's it's no, it's it's very much. Um, how shall I put this? I think uh, some maybe some substances were involved in the writing of this book um, because I, I think uh, I think literature at the time, and again, it's it's new wave. It's Hey man, don't get hung up on the details. This is just happening. So it becomes very purely uh, metaphorical and very purely thematic, right? It's not yeah, and he does talk about uh, he has um, this narrative device of my superior self took over. I'm not quite sure what it means literally, but it seems to be uh, that he's sort of um, like you said, just starts going with the flow and just doing something that um, <laughs> um, his sort of soul is telling him to do. Right. Right. It's, it's, it, yeah, because otherwise he just kind of rambles around <laughs> until he's yeah. given a mission. And he, you know, what's funny is that that ties into the theme as well. The two, the, the dual nature of man. And, and, you know, we have kind of a, uh, again, if you wanted to go with 
you know, the negative version, it's the bestial nature and the, the unthinking nature and the more uh, driven human nature. But um, it, in fact, the, it's reversed. The, the going, going with the flow is seen as a bit more, a bit more of a positive thing and being, you know, given a, you know, an obsessive quest is a bad thing. And that is very much in keeping with the romantic view of the enlightenment uh, which is what uh, Byron was. He was a romantic uh, in the sense of being a romantic poet. He was part of the romantic movement, and uh, it was that was that was very skeptical. That was one of the early versions of being skeptical about the march of progress and not necessarily believing that it was for the best. Um, <clears throat> and 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 in fact, that that this is framed in a way I think Byron would have framed it of. You know, mankind is maybe better when it just goes with the flow. <laughs> he probably wouldn't have phrased it that way. But you know, that letting mankind do what feels right is better than obsessively trying to, uh, you know, get hung up on fixing our mistakes. As I said, and 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 you know, building a new world or whatever. Maybe you can't build a new world. Maybe you should just learn to live in this one, essentially. Um, which is kind of interesting. Uh, so there were some. Um... There's an interesting take on the creature's appearance, which I thought was, uh, it because it differs from how it's how he's described in the uh, in the original novel. Um, he's a lot. He feels even more grotesque in, in this version. Um, his face is described as like um, uh, it, it's frequently described as a helmet that just sort of has a human face crudely like an abstract human face sort of crudely carved into it surgically. Like he's, um, uh, it says, um, all like distinguishing features of like a, a face have sort of been carved away with the surgeon knife. And it's just sort of, I don't know how did this, yeah, I yeah. can't remember the exact wording he used it, but it's, it's very odd. Uh, a very disturbing, uh, visual, I think. Um, and, and he also yeah, describes his coat as covered in excrement and, and slime and stuff. It's gross. Anyway. Well, that's because he's living out in the in the wilds, I think. Yeah, right? but he does. Yeah. But he doesn't seem to care yeah. about that. And um, then he does. He also when the, when he, when we see the bride, he actually does emphasize, and I think later he says this about the original monster too. I mean, logically, that he didn't just build a human. He built a new version of a human that is anatomically different from a human. It was yeah. Not it has two spines. Yeah, he's got all kinds of weird stuff. Uh, he's got extra ribs, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, yep. Uh, extra ribs that creates a larger uh, rib cage, and the legs are yeah. It's it's all sort of different parts roped together in a way meant to improve on humanity. But and it is that does make it very creepy, and it it adds to the sort of oh yeah that kind of is an abomination, yeah. you know, kind of. In, in the book, in the original book, uh, and this isn't necessarily. Um, text but what i got from it is um that he wanted to create like um like an idealized uh uh human being so like he'd be proportionally perfect but once he starts moving there's something wrong with everything right. and sort of sort of an uncanny valley situation where like if you just looked at a still maybe you know he's got he's still got yellow wrinkly skin but um like proportionally he might be handsome but once he starts moving everything's just like all the muscles you can see them underneath the skin and everything's just right. wrong yeah he's like the um, it's an uncanny valley kind of effect right like he's meant yeah, to in a yeah. certain way and it's interesting in the book he does joseph does say 
uh, oh, I, I, there's one scene where he says, I think the monster was actually quite handsome. Like, he gets a look at it. Oh, yeah, he describes it as as beautiful in a very weird way. Yeah. So it's, and it's, it's the unnaturalness of the monster that, that freaks people out, not the fact that it's this, you know. There's also, uh, in in the, in the original novel, um, the, the thing that, about the creature that disturbs people most is the eyes. He's apparently has really pale, faded yellow eyes that are Hmm. somehow really off-putting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, yes, that's, that's the general, uh attitude it's which is well done and it's consistent in this uh in this uh story as well just but that's he really hammers it home in a way that made me feel yeah. like oh yeah this thing is I, I was actually getting kind of grossed out reading this a little bit in places <laughs> yeah. uh with the physical descriptions sort of like a, uh-huh. in a Cronenbergian way in right. a, in a good way like you know that's what he was going for but right. it's interesting yeah uh it's not how i interpret the creature visually but you know there's there's all sorts of valid interpretations and mm-hmm. i think this one's an interesting one yeah um there's also a part and i i wish i wrote this down because like i'm not going to remember it from but where he he's talking to mary shelley and he he dips into modern speech for a bit as a joke like he says um you're the tops baby you're you know all yeah, into women's lib and yeah. <laughs> it's weird yeah well, I, mean, I guess it was supposed to be, but <laughs> yeah. weird. Even then, it was an old man trying to do it, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> or a, a well, an man old man. I, yeah. yeah, I guess that makes sense because he would have grown up in the in the seventies. Right. He would have been because it's in twenty twenty. So right. I don't know. Time and, travel confuses me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But yeah, it's 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 uh, it's it's almost a riff on trying to be. I, I, again, if we assume Bodenland is Aldous's self-insert character, it's it's almost mocking himself in some ways. I think. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's that. Again, it's it, it's it's a very stream of consciousness novel in some ways. I think he just sort of lies it in there because why not? But uh, so uh, there is a sequel to this, and I just finished the book yesterday. And I wish I knew this beforehand, so I would have given myself more time to read all this. But there's one called Dracula Unbound that apparently has Joe in it as well. So oh. I have no idea what happens in that, but oh, okay, yeah, I didn't know, I didn't realize he'd done that as well. Um, yeah, so there's, it's apparently a whole, there's a monster trilogy: uh, Frankenstein Unbound, Dracula Unbound, and there's another one about Doctor Moreau, but it doesn't seem to be directly connected to these. Well, tell you what, if you have time, you can read it, and it'll be in our next week's show or next show because the, there's... oh, I've already. I'm already doing some extra reading for that, so I think I'll be busy. <laughs> well, we'll see. I'll see if I can get it in. Too. We're discussing uh, Dracula, sort of next. Week. Sort of Dracula, just as we sort of did Frankenstein this week. So because it yeah. is our spooky October uh, month. So um, well, it seems like our hubris has caught up with us, and we must lurch off into the frozen lands for our final reckoning. Uh, with me was Philip Rice, Abomination before God and Man, and I'm Adam Prosser, firstborn of a new cursed race. See, because my name is Adam. <laughs> um, as always, thanks go out to our producer, engineer, and hunchbacked assistant, uh, Alex Ross, and Jack Furick, romantic poet, composer, and humanist. If you want to help uh, What Mad Universe continue its pursuit of forbidden knowledge, you can donate to one of or both of our Patreons. Uh, the links are below, or if you're listening to this via iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and the like, you can check them out at NeverSleepsNetwork slash series slash what-mad-universe, or just go to Patreon and search Philip Rice, one L, or Adam Prosser, two S's. Subscribers get to listen to our show early and also access to comics 
comics, illustrations, writings, and our failed former experiments. We've got a whole crate of these things around the back, and they will not shut up. You can find links on our website to our Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter feeds. But again, you can search for us here or there or at our Twitter feed at WMU Podcast. We'd love to hear from you with questions, comments, or suggestions for books to look at for this podcast. And in particular, if you like the show, please leave a review for us at iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. It would really help us out. So, from the frozen city at the end of the universe, we say goodbye, and we'll see you next time our temporal realities align. <laughs>